This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black on Federal News Network. One-on-one interviews with the people who've left a lasting imprint on the government and the nation. Now your host, Aileen Black. Today I'm talking with Maria Roth, Deputy Federal Chief Information Officer of the Office of Management and Budget. Maria was previously the Small Business Administration uh, Chief Information Officer and served at the Department of Homeland Security, Department of Transportation, and a number of leadership positions. Prior to that, uh, Maria retired from the U.S. Navy in 2007 with over 26 years of active duty uh, and reserve service. Uh, First off, thank you for your service, Maria, and uh, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you very much. Um, so, Maria, can you describe your leadership style? I mean, you, you've been a leader in many different instances. Uh, how would you describe it? Uh, <laughs> I think, uh, like many people, I, my style is very situationally dependent. Um, you know, I can be very highly directive, or I can be very much a coach, or I can be collaborative, right? There's many different facets to leadership style, and I think it's, it is situationally um, it is situationally dependent on, on what you're doing, right? Throughout the pandemic, you know, there were, there were things that we had to react to and respond to right away. And you make a decision and you say, this is what we're doing and, and we're moving on. But there's other, the, there's other things that you do that, that are very much, um, uh, you know, put all the ideas on the table, very collaborative, you know, uh, and that's where that style, you know, comes through. So I think many times it is, it is uh, situationally dependent, but, I do tend to be collaborative, um, always looking for ideas and innovation, if you will, uh, ideation, um, collaboration, you know, coaching. That's that's where I tend to go, um, rather than the highly directive. And again, that's certainly you'd be very high, highly directive in certain situations. Can you can you tell these stories about where you maybe faced a challenge or an obstacle? I mean, you're a woman uh, in, especially in the military, in a very male-dominated environment. Uh, you know, how how does that affect the way you lead, or or do you approach it differently? Um, you know, I, I my skin's pretty thick. I have to tell you, I mean, <laughs> um, you know, and I think being in the in the Navy, you know, in the military, you know, everybody's treated um, in general. People are treated equally. You're there for a job. You have things to do. Um, you're there for the mission. You're there to do a job. And and even though you know, and and you're not always differentiated because you're male, female, tall, short, green, yellow, whatever you are. You're everyone's treated in general equally. And and you're and again, you're there for the mission. And and I think I've taken a lot away from that from the military in my in my jobs and in my roles. And I think in my leadership style, we're all here for the mission. We're all here to do a job. And I, and that was one of the big takeaways I think from the military. And I certainly carry that today. Um, I can be, um, you know, very, I'm a, I'm a list person um, and pretty structured. Uh, I will tell you when I went on the FedRAMP program, right? I was brought on board. We had to go from IOC to FOC. My job was to get us to full operations, right? That was my job. Great. Got it. I know how to build things. I, I know how to construct things. Um, I, that's what I do. And I don't want to say fixer, but I would say I'm in the construction business and I'm a very good troubleshooter. And when I got to the FedRAMP program, my job was go from IOC to FOC. Katie Lewin was there and she had gotten the program started and, and I was brought in to do just that. Well, okay, great. We're going to have a plan and here's our plan and here's our project plan and here's all the things. And there was no definition for FOC. I said, well, let's de- define FOC. 
And because, you know, what I, <laughs> you know, I laid out a plan and I said in nine months, about 10 months, we're going to get to FOC. That's what we're going to do, right? I was on a mission. These are the things that we're going to do and we're going to go. And um, I will tell you that, that it made people very uncomfortable because there was a project plan. It was very structured. We had a goal, right? Here's where we were going. There were all the pieces and elements of running a program and a project all there. It was structured. Here's what we're going to do. These things are not priorities anymore. We're putting processes in place. And, and that did make people very uncomfortable. Um, and I did have somebody say something to me that, oh, they're not used to work. The team's not used to working like that. And I'm thinking, okay, but I have a job to do. We're on a mission and we're going to FOC. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, uh, and, and that's where, you know, sometimes it's, you know, we have a job to do and this is what we're doing. When you find uh, somebody's having a, a, a challenge with, you know, adopting a new style, how do, you, how do you lead people in that kind of situation? I mean, how did you approach it with them? I think it's, it's about the goal, right? The vision, right? You know, even with FedRAMP, it was a new program. It was doing something very different for the federal government around security in the cloud. People weren't always comfortable with the cloud, you know, um, you know, being in that environment, it was something new, a brand new federal wide program, which, you know, okay, cool. This is a federal wide program, but, you know, communicating what the vision and what the end game was, I think you had to have clarity around that and be very, you know, this is where we're going and these are the steps it's going to take us to get there. Maria, you have worked with so many great leaders in the past. Um, can you define what a great leader is? And if there is one that always comes to your mind uh, that you have worked with in the past? Wow. You know, there are, are there's so many different definitions, I think, of, of you know, what, what I've seen, you know, in really good leaders, you know, the sincerity. And, and I think genuine is probably first and foremost that, that, that comes to me is that people are very genuine. Um, maybe not down to earth, but that genuine and they don't come across as fake and it is a real person and that they have the ability to share a vision and where you're going and, and make those hard decisions. But there's always a passion that goes along with that sincerity and that, that genuineness, right? That commitment and that passion. And I also think, you know, there's really good leaders that, that they empower people, they, they inspire, they let people don't dictate people how to do their jobs. I think with a vision, people that I've seen, you know, here's the vision and here's where you're going and let people figure out how to get there and come up with their own ideas. And I've, and I've seen that in leaders and I've seen leaders who have um, taken risk, you know, not be afraid. And, and so leaders, I said, it come, they come in all different shapes and sizes, but those are, I think, some of the attributes. Um, there was a commander I worked for I was in Norfolk. I worked for Navy Medical. She, uh, she passed a couple of years ago, um, unfortunately, um, early. And uh, she was just really just sincere and very down to earth. And she was probably one of the first people I encountered who was really looking out 10 years on a vision, right? Who I really got close, not close to personally, but worked for, you know, nearly directly, you know, two levels up and, and got to see how she articulated that vision to people to say, here's where we need to go in five and in 10 years. And, you know, over time, I realized that people didn't always understand the vision, you know, and she had to communicate that over and over again. I said, this is where we have to go. She understood the mission. She understood technology. And she had to paint that picture to bring people there. And I think that was really important to watch her as she did that. Um, 
I've worked for a couple of amazing CIOs um, who, who, you know, I've seen them and worked closely enough with them where they agonized over really hard decisions and challenges and confrontations where they had to, you know, deal with really hard problems and really got to see on a personal level how they agonized over those decisions. You know, you see these things behind the scenes, right? As they're getting prepared or, you know, losing sleep at night. <laughs> I mean, that's what I mean about agonizing. And I've seen a couple of CIOs I've worked for who, who I think were incredible leaders. They both had different styles. Um, but to get, you know, both of them, I saw both of them agonize over some of the really hard decisions that they had to make as, as CIOs. Um, sometimes they were collaborative, you know, non-confrontational, tried to do the right thing, but sometimes they, they just had to do that. But they weren't afraid to take it on and step out. And they were incredibly, incredibly professional. I recently read an article in the Harvard Business Review, and it said that countries with women leadership have suffered six times fewer confirmed deaths from COVID-19 than countries... Um, with governments led by men. Um, these are obviously positive outcomes for women in leadership positions. And we, we talked a little bit about, you know, the, you know that you kind of, uh, in the military, you, you, you saw, you, you had an ability to be able to make it, you know, gray. You, you, you don't see it one way or another because everybody's mission focused. But those are pretty astounding results. So do you think, um, uh, you know, women make better leaders. Do you think women in leadership positions when it comes to crisis sometimes deal with things a little bit more effectively? I mean, what are your thoughts of women leaders versus men leaders? Um, it's interesting because I've, I've worked in a male-dominated field for so long, and I can tell you that, you know, I haven't worked for that many women, right? Um, so very different perspective. But to your question, I think, you know, women sometimes bring a different life perspective. Um, and I think there's a lot more, when you talk about some of the soft skills that women bring to the table, the perception, some of the life experiences that women have that maybe men don't as much, um, that they, they bring that to the table. You know, rather than being, um, listening, I think is one thing that many women bring to the table that, that sometimes men don't always do, um, is just that listening, you know. It's not, you know, it's not men are from Mars and women are from Venus, right? It's, you know, guys oftentimes, they have to fix things. My husband does the same thing, right? He's got to fix it. And sometimes I have to tell him, I didn't ask you to fix it. I just need you to listen. <laughs> um, but I think women bring that to the table and they listen to all the viewpoints and distill that and then come back with a, with a response. It's not an immediate, okay, we're going to fix it right now. Um, and I think those are some of the things that I think women bring to the table that you don't always see that from, um, you know, from, from male counterparts. I'm speaking with Maria Roth, Deputy Chief Information Officer of Office of Management and Budget. After the break, we'll discuss leadership, decision-making, and communication, and why it's important to have the right combination. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black, and today I'm talking with Maria Rote, Deputy Chief Information Officer of, of Office of Management and Budget. Now, we talked a little bit earlier about you know, leadership and, and decisions, but what is the most type of uh, important type of decisions you can make a, as a leader in your organization, Maria? I mean, you know, there, there are all different types of decisions that you can make. Um, I can go like a couple of ways with this. I, you know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, the most important type of decisions you can make as a leader in an organization, there's always 
the vision and the strategy and how to execute, but I also don't want to lose sight of taking care of your people, you know, and I think that's really important within your organization to take care of the staff, get to know them. Um, I don't know that we talk about that enough um, because I can set a vision even in my current job, right, or where I've been before. Here's where we're going. Here's the technology direction. Here's what we're doing, but you also can't can't lose the sight, uh, lose sight of the, the impact on the people who work for you. You know, being in the military, you know, in the Navy, going through uh, initiation for chief when they called it initiation way back. <laughs> but it was always, you know, take care of your people, take care of your people, take care of your people. And that was certainly ingrained into everything you do to take care of, take care of your folks who are, who are working for you because those are the ones who are gonna come up behind you to take your place at some point. Um, you know, and then on the other side, besides the people, you know, the most important type of decisions are making sure that we're, you know, mission alignment, we can talk about all, all of those kinds of things. But, but again, I think it comes back to the people um, and the decisions you make in how you work with your staff and, and how you work with your team. So let's talk about how you work with your team. So when you approach a decision, there's many different ways that an organization can do a decision. Um, do you do the decision by committee? Do you did your leadership style more to just make it, or do you situationally change your leadership decision style? You know, I think it's situational, but I love being in a room where you have a hard problem to solve. And this is where, you know, at DOT and also at SBA, my team there was phenomenal as well. We would, we would, you know, either early in the morning or sometimes late in the day, we would start talking about things. And, and the next thing you know, the next day, we've got everybody in a room on a whiteboard coming up with ideas to solve a problem, right? And, and you know, some of those, those things feed into directional decisions. And maybe it's not fully baked, but you get the ideas on the table and you hash through them and then somebody gets a whiteboard marker and then they draw and then somebody else gets a book marker and they erase it and they draw something else. And, and there's a lot of contributions. And sometimes that comes to not necessarily the decision, if you will, but the approach, right? Um, maybe not in the weeds, how, but the approach and how to get to yes, or whatever that target, whatever that target is. And I think those are, those are the things that, that I really like the most is, is having those sessions. And I had somebody tell me recently, oh, you don't want that person in the room because they will go off the ranch. Well, you know what? I've had a lot of people who work for me that are way outside the box thinkers. I think I can handle them. <laughs> and it's okay because I want to hear from those folks. Um, um, and and I, don't, I don't need somebody to tell me that oh, you don't want them in the room because they are way out there. I want, I want to hear those kind of things because that gives you insight into what everybody's thinking. And even those way outside the box ideas are what you really need to hear as a leader. Because sometimes you go, oh, I didn't think about that. Um, and I think those are, those are really important. And, and certainly there's, there's times where you need to be highly directive, right? That's in a crisis. Um, and you need to make a decision and say, here's where we're going. And this is what we're going to do. But on the other hand, like I said, you know, um, really getting through approaches and whiteboard sessions, ideation, I, I really, I really, I get a lot of energy out of those and listening to people and getting all of the viewpoints and then seeing how that comes together. 
You know, there's been uh, so many books written on leadership and culture. One of my favorite uh, quotes is, culture eats strategy for breakfast by the legendary management consultant, Peter Drucker. Um, what do you believe is the relationship between leadership and culture? And, and how does leadership also affect culture over time? Oh my gosh, I, I have to laugh at that quote because um, at SBA I had a whiteboard with, you know, those whiteboards that are on wheels and you can flip them. Well, on one side of it was all the stuff that was going on. If you flip the whiteboard over, there were quotes that people put up on the board and, and culture eats strategy. We had up there culture eats strategy for lunch, but lunch, breakfast, dinner, you know, whatever. But it was at the top, at the very top of the board and people used to riff on that because it's, it's funny, but it's not. And, and when you're in a, when you're in an organization that's always done things the same way all the time, um, breaking through that culture to do things differently is really, really hard. And, and in technology, people who've worked in technology, you're used to change all the time, right? Technology just continues to accelerate. It's constant change. Yet when you're in an organization, I don't care if you're in the private or the public sector, there is always going to be change in technology. And, and, and how do you bring people on board with the vision that you have for technology for an organization? I will share that at SBA, it was very difficult because people were used to doing the same thing all the time. But even as the federal government, you know, with the TARA and the change in the laws and the requirements around, you know, cybersecurity and all the things that we have to do as a federal government to maintain and continue to provide services to the American public, yet making sure we've got security, making those changes, even the simple ones were very hard. And this get back, gets back to the culture um, you know, of, of really, how do you make those changes? Sometimes you make wholesale changes and sometimes they're subtle and, and very, you know, um, a little bit over time. But, you know, one of the things that we did at SBA, we tried to burn the bridges behind us so people couldn't go back when we did make changes. But, but again, communicating the benefits of those changes. I'll, I'll give you two other quotes that, that, that I like. <laughs> one of those, if uh, this goes to the culture, right? If you always do what you've always done, You'll always get what you've always got. And I have hung on to that for more than 20 years because I think that goes to some of the culture, right? If you keep doing things the same way, things will continue being the same way. And, and in the world we live in, it's constant change. And, and you really have to be in tune with the organization's culture and how you can affect that change. And the second quote has been on my emails for years. And um, it's from E.B. White. I don't know if you've heard this one, Eileen. It's as I get up every morning, determined to both change the world and have one hell of a good time. Sometimes this makes planning my day difficult. <laughs> but again, this goes to change and, and being in an environment of, of constant change and being able to, to embrace that. So yes, culture eats strategy for lunch, because if you've got this great and wonderful strategy for the organization and the culture will not accept that, um, you have to be able to bridge it. Maria, you have a very important role as the deputy CIO of OMB. Tell us about your role and your mission. Um, well, at OMB, uh, you know, of course, you know, we advise the OMB director and, of course, the deputy director for management on information policy oversight, and we do all of those things, really driving um, IT modernization, digital service delivery. Um, uh, uh, for the federal government and and OMB as a whole you know does affect change in the federal government we work very closely with our budget colleagues 
um, because even as we're driving, you know, as we're driving change, we have to work very closely. We have an incredible CIO council. Of course, I'm very intimately involved with um, with the CIO council. I work very closely with the federal CISO. Um, uh, a lot of relationships with the internal OMB stakeholders because it's really about the federal enterprise coordinating, you know, legislative response, outreach. You know, when somebody on the Hill um, is thinking about a bill, you know, sometimes they send it over to us to say around technology. Well, what do you think about this, right? Ask for initial thoughts. So we get involved in, in legislation. So it's not just, you know, OMB setting direction, working with the CIOs. There's also those, those legislative pieces that we have to do. And of course, you know, um, the legislation, you know, is the essentially the what of what, you know, sometimes is going to happen. And then we have to figure out how some of those are going to be implemented. Um, certainly supporting executive orders from the president, um, the president's management agenda, driving the budget from there, as well as policy decisions. You know, we've got another administration that'll be, that we've got to change, regardless of the outcome of the election, there will be a change. And, you know, what's the next president's management agenda? And where does technology play a role and, and you know, that agenda and the president's management agenda? So a lot of relationships with internal, external stakeholders, you know, the Hill, executive orders. So a, a lot of coordination and a lot of alignment across the board, not just with the CIOs, um, but also with industry, too. Well, it, and it doesn't get any easier. I mean, you have had experience in tech in, industry for decades now, and, and there's no doubt that the landscape is drastically changing with the evolution and adoption of cloud, um, AI, quantum, 5G, um, the management, uh, you know, the directive around the data strategy, which is a whole new concept for uh, many federal agencies to look at the information that they have on hand and how to leverage it. How do you believe these technologies advances will change the way that we uh, work with the government and the government serves uh, their constituents? The, um, uh, you know, I think, oh, oh wow, um, technology changes. We've got a lot of programs and a lot of projects underway. Um, I'm going to highlight uh, data for one and then come back to your question because data as we're getting our arms around the foundations of data across the federal government, what we own, how we use it, how we can use it for decision making. Um, I think having that foundation for data, the data maturity, data sharing, the governance around data will really help us in the long run, right? We've, we've moved to cloud. We're moving our data footprint into the cloud. Um, AI takes advantage of data. AI takes advantage of data, machine learning takes advantage of data that we have in our environment, whether that data is in form of documents and regulations or just data and uh, information, you know, uh, I don't know, the information like at SBA on a small business, right? Those data elements or pick your agency, right? They've got lots of different data types. Um, but, but data, you need that data and you need that maturity around data to be able to use, um, future technologies and even technologies of today, right? Think about AI, right? Some of the work we're doing around AI and machine learning. Um, there's the, the technology advances are gonna continue. And for the federal government being out in front of, of you know, our, the American public, right? We have to be digital first in everything we're doing in the federal government. And we need to rethink how we act as a federal enterprise, whether it's around data sharing, or how the public interacts with the federal government. Is that, does that person um, have 
10 different logins because they're dealing with 10 different agencies in the federal government? Or are we gonna to get to one? And this gets to some of, the, some of the identity management, right? When people log in and use federal government services. And even now the, the pandemic put a big highlight on digital because people are working from their homes. And it, it, things have to be mobile enabled. Um, mobile enabled, they have to be digital. And, and even as we move through the pandemic, the federal government, there will be continue to be in-person interactions, but I think a lot of those will be more hybrid. You schedule appointment ahead of time. When you walk into an office, right, you, you may use an interface to log in. And, and the technology is going to continue to evolve. So even as we're moving in that direction to better serve the American public, putting data and foundations in place, we need to, to continue to modernize internally as well. You know, we talk about legacy systems, the older systems of the federal government. Those have to be modernized now because when you look at things like quantum that are coming 10 years or 15 years out, the encryption methodologies that, that need to be in place to, to be able to address the capabilities of quantum, we have to start doing that transition now for those legacy systems to make sure that we're set up and being able to respond to those and be able to to have be able to support those encryption methodologies. So even as quantum is, is able to break our current methodologies, we have to modernize our current. There's, there's a lot of advances and a lot of changes. I mean, 5G is, is one where there's probably 50 test beds with 5G around the federal government working with industry, whether it's Department of Transportation, V to V, V to I, that's you know, vehicle to vehicle, vehicle to intersection. Um, you know, all the, all the electronics and the sensors that are in cars right now is, is one example. And I work with that while at DOT, but it's just not that it's drones. It's all the other capabilities. And I think the federal government has really taken advantage of, of a lot of those, but that's going to continue. And we have to continue to embrace those technologies, learn how to use those certainly prudently, you know, acceptable risk postures, making all, all making sure we're, we're using all of those next technologies appropriately. But again, we have to be set up so that we're paying attention to the future so that we're not lagging behind in our systems and our technology so that we're using the cloud, we're using our data, and we're embracing a lot of those capabilities so that we can move to the next level. I'm speaking with Maria Rote, Deputy Chief, Federal Chief Information Officer of Office of Management and Budget. Coming up next, we'll talk about being a leader through some of the crisis in the change that we're dealing with. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Maria Rote, Deputy Federal Chief Information Officer of Office of Management and Budget. Now, we've been talking a lot about change, Maria, in the prior segments, but getting organizations to adopt change are always one of the biggest leadership uh, challenges. We talked a little bit about culture. So how do you personally um, approach leadership, uh, leading an organization to a top change? I mean, you've done some major leadership roles for changing. You mentioned FedRAMP. And how do you keep the teams focused on doing, like, you know, you eat sometimes what might some people believe is an impossible uh, mission objective? <laughs> well, I don't think anything's impossible. Things are hard. Um, that's it's kind of how I approach it. Things could be hard, but they're not impossible, right? Um, and and you know, if, if, when I set a direction, here's where we're going. So like at SBA, I said, we're getting down to, you know, uh, six racks in our data center. We are moving to Windows 10, upgrading our environment, right? So there were, 
some very specific things. We're going to the cloud. And, and getting the organizational support to do those kind of things. I think you have to be um, uh, part relentless <laughs> in, uh, in what you do. Um, because getting organizations to, to adopt change, it, it is a leadership challenge. And, but if you know that it's the right thing to do and you know it's the right direction, you have to continually communicate that. Continuous communications, continuous communications, and be relentless about it. Um, and, and just, and you might feel like you're a broken record talking about things all the time. You know, this is where we're going. This is what we're going to do. We're moving to six racks in the data center. We are going to the cloud. We're upgrading to windows 10 and we're upgrading our entire infrastructure to an ethernet backbone. Well, sometimes people don't always see the reason for that. And even though you articulate it, you know, at SBA, we moved the entire organization to an ethernet backbone. Well, what people weren't connecting with is the fact that by moving to an ethernet backbone, it allowed the ability for video capability allowed us to use Teams, allowed us to move to voice over IP and get off our digital circuits and allow us the ability to, to expand our circuits when we need to during surges and things like that. So, you know, that's organizational change and having to explain the, the whys around that and, and translate that into business terms, right? Leadership, does, you know, my leadership, they don't get that we're moving to an Ethernet backbone, but they do understand we're going to be able to do voice calls and video calls on our network. Right? We'll be able to do video calls and we'll be able to do things like teams and collaboration tools on our network where we can't do now. So being able to translate that into business terms, I think is really important when you're really talking about change. It's not about excuse me, technology change. It's also about that business change and being good partners with the business and really articulating what the impact is on the mission and what the goodness is, what the good things are that, that are coming out of it. So, you know, it's not just for your team, but it's also for your business partners as well as your leadership and being able to, to do that. I think we talked earlier about FedRAMP, right? That's a big change. Um, you know, you had CISOs and you had, um, this is going back to 2014, 2015 cloud. We can't move to the cloud. We're rack huggers. We've got data centers. Well, I hate to tell you, your security is not that good and you might have a hard shell, but you got a squishy interior security is not that good and guess what the cloud providers are doing it better than you do and getting those that was a big change in the federal government moving the cloud and that FedRAMP setting up the stage for that security um, was really something that 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 was really hard for a lot of people to adjust to and now you fast forward six years later agencies are all moving to the cloud they're taking advantage of software as a service like what do you mean I have to buy hardware anymore right this is where you get the CFO in there Oh, CapEx versus OpEx. So you know you're getting the CFO's attention when you start talking in those kind of terminology. But again, being relentless and, and continuing to communicate both on a business level to leadership, your business partners, as well as being able to talk technical speak with your team um, when, and being able to get through that. So I think you know, adopting change is, is hard, but again, being relentless. <laughs> You know, in the first segment, we talked about women in leadership uh, positions. Uh, Maria, again, you have been uh, a leader uh, in technology for decades, and but women are still drastically underrepresented in technology companies, especially on um, in Silicon Valley from a leadership position. Um, can you uh, share how we can help address this? Uh, do you have any ideas? I mean how we can change these numbers. I, I, you know, we've been talking, you and I have been talking about this probably for five or six years off and on. Um, you know, and the numbers aren't changing. 
Um, you know, I got this question a few weeks ago talking about, you know, women and technology and leaders. And I guess, you know, it took me a long time to really get my head wrapped around the fact that, you know, w when you're in leadership positions, I never really thought through that, okay, I'm a woman in leadership and I'm different. I never thought that way. I don't know if that makes any sense because I've been in so many positions where it was, you know, you're there for the mission and you're doing the job. And I was, you look back on my career, oftentimes I was the only female in the room, but I was also the supervisor or the team lead or something like that. And I never thought twice that I was the only female in the room. Um, so, you know, coming from that perspective, I've had to step back sometimes and think this is not everybody's experience and understand that, that, you know, like you said, there's not a lot of women in leadership roles in technology. And I always wonder about that because we talk about tech and we talk about young women and you got to figure out what you're good at. I always figured out that I was a good troubleshooter getting to the root cause of the problem. And I knew I could build things in the construction business. And part of being in construction, you get the big vision, here's where we need to go, but I knew how to build to get there. And I think for women, um, you know, whether they're in school or coming up in their careers, understand what you're really good at. And for folks that are, you know, really good at analysis, you could work in cybersecurity. If you understand analysis, if you are really good at math, you can work in cybersecurity and networking. And if you're really good in math, you understand what a zero trust network could be, right? Because you've got those foundations around the bits and the bytes and the ones and the zeros, and you understand, you know, what a packet is. That takes math skills. And so I think we need to do a better job sometimes of translating those things that you do that are really good and what you are really good at and how that translates into a leadership role or your career or your next job because it's not just oh you need a job in tech but what are you really good at and if you're a really good troubleshooter or you're a really good analyst you could be in data a data analyst or a data scientist but you or an economist or you could be working in cybersecurity doing the analysis and being a threat hunter because you know how to dig in and, and how to find things and and I think we need to talk more about that and those type of capabilities not you're a coder I'm really bad at coding. I was never a good programmer, but I was a good troubleshooter and I could troubleshoot the code. I just didn't have the patience to sit still and write. <laughs> um, so I think we need to do a better job of that. And once we do a better job of that, I think you may see more women coming into leadership roles. I mean, I, or maybe not, I don't know. That's just an opinion. <laughs> You're listening to Leaders in Legend and Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black, and today I'm talking with Maria Roth, Deputy Federal Chief Information Officer, Office of Management and Budget. Next, we'll find out Maria's advice to the next generation of federal leaders. You're listening to Leaders in Legend and Government. Welcome back to Leaders in Legend and Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black, and today I'm talking with Maria Roth, Deputy Federal Chief Information Officer, Office of Management and Budget. You know, Maria, we are on the eve of a presidential election, and we talked about it uh, a moment ago. Do you have any advice for any of the career government executives as, as how they navigate the change, regardless of the election outcome, uh, you know, moving forward? I know there will be a, many SESers or, you know, uh, career service members that may be effectively, uh, you know, acting in place for a while. Uh, do you have any advice for them? Yeah, you know, it, it, there's going to be a leadership transition every four years, regardless of whether it's, you know, an, you know, from a president, the incumbent, but every four years, there will be some kind of leadership transition, and it, it is going to happen. Um, and, and I think with the career government executives, 
you know, continually focused on the mission and that continuity and navigating the changes. You know, we will have a new federal CIO at some point. Um, and again, that CIO will come in with a vision in support of the president's agenda. And, you know, from a career perspective, we will continue to support that, that agenda. And, you know, anyone coming in, there will be an education certainly of how the government works because sometimes people just don't know. And that is a role of ours as well. That, that we do know how the government works, we do know where there's opportunities for change, and that even when, for example, a new federal CIO comes in, having those conversations about what is top of mind for that federal CIO, the direction for the administration, and being able to support that. At the agency level, that translates to the same thing, right? You know, what is the direction of the agency? Where are they gonna make changes? Where are they going to improve? Um, or just, uh, you know, look at new mission spaces, those kind of things, and I think, this is where government executives help navigate and say, you know, this is the direction we're going. We will help you get to where the, you know, the president's headed, whether it's the president's management agenda or the strategy. We will help support all of, all of those things. But again, we bring to the table the understanding of how that will happen, right? Because there can be a what. Here's what we want to do, but how to execute that, how to, even in my role, right? How do we bring policy to bear to execute on that on that vision and to make that happen? So this is where the government executives really have have a history and really know how to how to make it work through a transition. So there will be change. There's always change. Now, what role does OMB take? And every four years, there's a transition. I don't care if the administration changes or not, right? So what role does OMB do to help with the uh, change and transition and make it smooth? I think, you know, as new, new, whether there's new or some of the same staff, um, it's, it's again, it's an opportunity for the president to set his or her agenda to say, this is what's going to happen over the next four years. So the president sets that. This is where, our, where we're going for the next four years. And of course, that translates down. So post-election, what that is going to look like, um, uh, being able to support, you know, if there's a change of administrations, you know, the, the incoming um, you know, whoever's incoming, being able to support them and what their agenda is, or if it's the incumbent, supporting what their targets are for the next four years. So from OMB's perspective, making sure that the policies, the guidance, um, putting those things in place for the, for the new administration and, and helping move that agenda along. You can really feel your passion uh, in your commitment to civil service. You've been a civil servant, whether it be in the military, um, serving our nation or in the in public service uh, in here in Washington DC. Um, so why why public service? What you know you, you know what drives you what, in that in that career path? Oh my gosh! I mean, I, I worked on my first computer in I think 1970. Um, I want to say 78, 79. I was in high school and I worked on my first computer and I was absolutely hooked. And at the time, there were no colleges that were really teaching that stuff. That's why I joined the Navy. And right, so I joined the Navy and, and I was hooked on, this is what you do as a federal government. This is what you work on. And, and so it wasn't just the technology hooks. You know, even if after I got off active duty, I, I got into the federal government as a GS3 and I loved what I did. And, and, you know, I stuck with technology because there were so many things you can do in the federal government that, that you weren't doing in the private sector. So when I got off active duty and I was interviewing, it was kind of like, nah, I interviewed some jobs, but I wasn't excited about it. And then when I got a job in federal government, I got picked up as a GS3. I was like, okay, I was cool. It was exciting. And I continue to work in tech because 
even going back into the 90s, the work around, I was, I was working on, in the 90s, running a federal um, global enterprise network management system. This is in the mid-90s. Take a look at what CISA's doing today. I was working on that in the mid-90s. Who gets to do that in the, in the private sector, being able to work on these capabilities and running a global network in the mid-90s, running a global network, right? With, with you know, and this is when I was working for Navy Medical, right? 17 medical treatment facilities for the Navy, plus all the medical dental clinics. Saw them coming up on wiring them for the first time, on network cabling and routers and being in the thick of bringing an entire Navy medical ecosystem online. Who gets to do that? Um, and, and being on the forefront of that. And I think in the federal government, you get those experiences where you can't get that anywhere else. Think about the mission of the federal government in serving the public. You know, um, uh, everybody thinks about NASA, right? Going to space, going to Mars, going to the moon, all the work that, that NASA does. You can track them on, you know, Twitter and Instagram and, and all of that. But think about the rest of the federal agencies, whether it's the National Park Service or the USDA supporting all the farmers across the country. You know, I think in another life, I will probably go work in a national park and be a park ranger. Um, that would be so cool. Um, but, but you're serving the public. And I think this is part of working in the federal government. There are so many different missions and so many things you can do. And, and being ahead of um, um, in, in making an impact on the public and the American public is, is really, um, that's what I get out of this. And I think anybody coming to work for the federal government, think about the mission and the space and the impact you can have on this country. Your career and success is truly inspirational, Maria. And, and again, thank you for all your service. Uh, do you have any, you have three kids, do you have any pearls of wisdom for that next generation? I mean, what do you tell them about what they should do with their career, especially during these un, uncertain times? <laughs> you know, uh, following, you know, for, I have three daughters and of course they're all very different and they're all very close. And I think part of it is, you know, uh, follow your passion. What are you interested in? Um, you know, I, I've always been interested in tech. I love it. I love the pace of change. I love working for federal government and public service. But I've always told them, you know, um, follow your passion. Do what you like to do. Right? If you like what you do, then, then it's not a job. I mean, I don't mean to be pithy about the comment, but you hear that time and time again about if you're passionate about what you do, if you like what you do, um, it's, it's, it's going to be a joy for you. You know, my... Uh, my um, my oldest, um, she is my free spirit, um, and she is down in Asheville, North Carolina. She absolutely loves it down there. It's an artsy town, and she just loves working down there and being in that space. And I have another daughter who got her, her master's in neuroscience, incredibly proud of her. She just moved to Denver, and now she wants to, um, to get her PA, her physician's assistant. So she's going to go back to school. But, and, and my youngest, the same thing. They're following their passion. And that's what I want. I want them to be happy and follow their passion and not do something and work in a place because it's work and they need a paycheck, that, that it's something they like to do. And maybe sometimes you do have to do a job that you don't like to do because it's paying the bills and that's okay. But figure out what else that passion is. You've been listening to Leaders and Legend in Government. My guest today has been Maria Rote. I'm Aileen Black. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black. Subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One.